face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Policy Dialogue series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on October 14th, 2020, and my name is Evan Papp. I graduated in 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which focuses on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. And uh, before we introduce our distinguished guest, Esther, please uh, introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, hi again. Um, glad to be back. Um, my name is Esther Rodriguez, and I graduated in 2018 from the School of Public Policy in the um, first undergraduate cohort. Um, following that, I went and pursued my uh, master's in education at American University and uh, I specialize in social emotional learning and family engagement. Um, currently, I work for the School of Public Policy and I'm helping to increase civic participation um, among the community. Great, thank you. And we're very excited to speak with Dr. David Mussington. Dr. Mussington is a professor of the practice and director of the Center for Public Policy and Private Enterprise at the University of Maryland College Park. In 2010, David was senior advisor for cyber policy in the US Department of Defense, later serving on the Obama administration's National Security Council staff as director for surface transportation security policy. David is adjunct member of the research staff at the Institute for Defense Analysis, directing studies for the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He also holds a bachelor's in economics and political science, a master's in political science, both from the University of Toronto, and a PhD in political science from Carleton University. Dr. Mussington, thank you for joining the Policy Dialogue series. My pleasure. So before we jump in, could you talk about how you got interested in policy and why others should care about public policy? Well, I guess I got interested in policy from my economics background. Mostly I've always been interested in science, and social science, because I'm a science fiction fan and I happened to run into a specific book by Isaac Asimov, and I'll stop right there with my science fiction um, nerdiness. Um, but just say that the notion of applying science to policy and to history has always interested me and it drove my undergraduate course selection and my graduate research. Great. Well, everyone in the world right now, their eyes are turned on the U.S. elections and uh, want to focus on a 2020 interview with the SecDev group. You outlined cyber threats to the 2020 election. Could you discuss some of those threats that we may experience over the coming weeks? Well, you know, one um, issue I think that we need to come to grips with is that we're all looking at 2016 as the model for the way things may occur in 2020. That's probably a mistake. Um, we were late in understanding what happened in 2016, and using that as a lens to understand 2020, it's a bit of a 
a bit of a dead end um, for the following reasons. First, there's still contention about what happened in 2016. So we can argue, argue ourselves into a standstill over who was to blame or who did what. Um, second, there's a whole set of new cyber actors who are interested in us this cycle. Um, Microsoft, the FBI, and DHS have identified at least three countries that are interested in our elections, interested enough to do cyber probes, not attacks, but certainly espionage and probing of US systems. These are Russia, China, and Iran. There are probably other countries as well, but that's a, that's a settled fact now, whereas in 2016, we didn't really know who was active, even though there was a lot of rumor that we knew about. A second thing separate from countries is the level of disinformation that we've become aware of in the preceding four years. The impact on public opinion, the impact on mobilization of voters or demobilization of voters, as the case may be, is probably more significant than cyber threats. And that means that we're concerned about fake news, we're concerned about phony messaging on Facebook or Twitter that in fact is authored by foreign countries. Um, and that can have real political consequences. I think the narrowness of the Electoral College victory that took place in 2016 is testament to that. And we face both of those challenges in 2020. I always wonder on the, the cyber side of things because the US is so different than most countries that our federal elections still are managed by each state. So does that make it harder then for uh, cyber threats to actually occur um, or easier because maybe the state governments aren't quite as equipped? So I think there's people who argue on both sides of that. Initially, the thought was, well, we have 50 states and territories and others organizing elections. So how could someone possibly figure out a, a target that complicated? That was our view in 2016. I think since then, we've seen exactly how people can figure out <laughs> that is. Because while our election system may be complicated, um, we're not that complicated that foreign countries can't understand our vulnerabilities. Um, so the voter turnout in 2016 wasn't as high as it had been in previous years. And the actual deciding margins were much smaller than the 128 million odd people who voted. Um, common media portrayals of the outcome talk about 77,000 votes in three states being enough to change the outcome of the electoral college vote. Um, once you're talking about 77,000 votes in a universe of 128 million, we're talking about a much smaller challenge for an attacker if what you want to do is try and manipulate opinion and depress or suppress vote, voting activity. I think that that's um, a feasible attack problem. I don't know if it happened in, in 2016, but as an analyst, I think that 77,000 out of 128 million is a lot different than 3,141 counties and 50 states. Um, and I think that um, analysts need to think more clearly about what it takes to disrupt an electoral college-based system versus a popular vote system, which of course we don't have. Well, I'm really excited that you're here. Obviously, I am a huge fan um, of you. And you know, you mentioned something just now that um, makes me think of, like you said, 2016 is much different, right? When we compare 2016 to today, right? And it's known, right? Uh, Trump won due to record turnout from both parties, um, more from Democrats, but 
you know, it, it, you know, he won with less votes than Trump. I mean, Romney got in 2012, you know, and he lost. So clearly no one was coming to this election. And yes, there was a ton of disinformation um, that, you know, Russia, China put out into the ether, into Facebook, and it was pretty easy to infiltrate in these like, um, uh, because we're so partisan, right? Because people, people just wanna read stuff that they agree with. They wanna read stuff um, that's gonna kind of confirm their, their biases or their prejudices. Um, and they've, they've taken great comfort in that. Um, you, and I, you and I have had many conversations about this election and the concern is real, right? Um, because of 2016, I think most of us are really scarred from it. And regardless where the polls are, you know, the, the message is clearly get out and vote, get out and vote, get out and vote. But there's a difference, right? And, and I'm almost hesitant to say this, right? Because I don't want to jinx anything, but there's definitely, something now is changing. You can look at Texas, okay, as a perfect example. Um, it has counties that are almost 100% registered to vote. Like, this is unheard of. And, you know, a state like Texas, right, that, you know, is historically red, right? But it's red because of voter suppression, um, because of all of the uh, hills that they'd expect people to climb, because when it comes right down to it, I think it's the second largest economy to California, and I might not be right, but I know it's up there, um, but it's the 50th in terms of voter participation. So clearly these people are not engaged, and when I say these people, I mean Texans. Um, it's very different now. Seven and a half million people have already put in their, their, their absentee ballots. They've already voted, and even though there's a ton of disinformation campaigns, right? And I'm just not ignoring the polls. I think that, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, this is not gonna be a close race. This is not gonna be the difference between 77,000 votes. And we can see that because of the amount of people that have already voted thus far. So, and this is gonna be a really loaded question, right? But is there a potential still right, of some sort of cyber security um, or some sort of cyber hack, right, that could potentially influence the election? Um, or, what we, what, or, do, or what do we really need to worry about, like, more over, like, voter suppression? Like, I'm sure you've read the articles today about California having GOP had put out, like, fake yeah. ballot boxes, fake ballot boxes, and they said they're not going to stop doing it. So like, is that the biggest threat now? Is, is the, the biggest threat now not cyber hacks or even disinformation on Facebook, right? Because I think Facebook has lost all kinds of credibility. Um, but is it moreover like cheating? Is that, is that the biggest threat now to our election in less than three weeks? Well, I think it's difficult to rank um, the, the risks and threats to elections. I think some of that comes from one's own risk, risk tolerance. Um, um, as an immigrant here who votes in all, all elections where I can, where I'm eligible and volunteered in my first election back in 2004, I suppose, um, to be a poll worker because I thought it was important I understand what it's like and no, I will not be volunteering again. <laughs> but. I think that it's important to realize that this is a multi-layer problem and that we can't know really in advance exactly what set of risk factors are going to be, be the ones that make the difference. 
Um, I can give a list of factors, if you like, that concern me in this election. So and this isn't in any particular priority order. Um, first, I am concerned that we didn't learn the lessons of 2016 for cybersecurity of election systems. I mean voting machines, voter registration systems, vote tabulation systems, and electronic audit systems, or proposals to have electronic voting be introduced. I don't think that we've learned those lessons sufficiently to be guaranteed that those issues won't complicate our counting this time. Um, the big problem there is that there's no national architecture or standards base for election administration, and I mean a technological one, that allows us to know magnitudes of risk. Instead, we have 50 states, over 3,000 counties, empowered cities, um, and different jurisprudence in different states about who gets to vote, how they vote, how they register to vote. Um, some have, have voting, voter registration rather, on the day of an election. Some there's a 30-day carve-out. Some there's a, you can register by mail. Some you have to register in person. I mean, there's just so much variation. Um, some pluses in that area are that we now have a 48-state intrusion detection system that protects all of the state's voter registration systems. That's new, didn't have that in 2016, uh, fully developed. That means that we're better detecting adversary presence. Um, however, it's a very primitive system. It's about 10 years old, 10 year old technology. So the cyber threat's not 10 years old, the cyber threat's 2020 vintage. So what are the chances that 10 year old cyber defenses are going to be able to detect 21st century um, capabilities of Iran, China, and Russia. I don't know the answer to that, but I think older, older defenses are less effective than newer attack methods. So that's number one. Basic cybersecurity, network protection is a risk. Second, we don't know how to manage disinformation on social media platforms. And while I celebrate Facebook and Twitter's recent policy changes that allow them to interdict some messages, the problem isn't whether they kick out bad accounts. The problem is algorithmic manipulation of opinion through customized advertising to specific subsets of the American people. That continues, why does it continue? Because it's the business model of social media that slices and dices the billions of members of social media platforms, the customers, or maybe I guess the products, for advertisers to aim their messages to. That basic technique or technology that isn't owned by government, is owned by the private sector, is usable by political actors to manipulate popular opinion. And it always will be. We can have laws against it and we can try and mitigate it, but it's a capability that didn't used to exist with such power. It exists now and our political system is now under stress because trying to undertake democratic informed voting procedures in that environment makes us vulnerable to fake news and opinion manipulation. And that's a fixed feature of our democracy from now on. Now let's talk about foreign adversaries and whether they understand the vulnerabilities that we have as a democracy. I think they do. And I say that as a former Canadian who, whose PhD was on American politics. Many Americans think our system is so complicated that a foreigner cannot understand it. That is a fundamental mistake. Our system is complex, can be understood by people who are determined enough and incentivized enough to put in the effort. And there are plenty of adversaries in the United, of the United States 
who will put in that effort, not just understanding our political system, but understanding our critical infrastructures as well in ways that allow them to hold our infrastructures hostage if we do things or say things that they don't like. That asymmetric um, capacity of weaker countries and weaker groups to manipulate our society and our political systems is true irrespective of who wins the election. And it was true in 2016 and we didn't realize it. We're much more aware of it now. Except now we actually have a peer competitor that most bipartisan experts agree is a real challenge and that's China. Now, do I think that China is manipulating our election? No, I have no information on that topic at all. Do I think they're interested in the outcome? Of course they are, why wouldn't they be? We're their biggest trading partner. We're also the biggest threat to their global rise and, and prestige. So that means that we're in a more competitive international situation with all these vulnerabilities that we haven't yet mitigated. So I think we're at risk and we're at risk in ways that many in the media don't understand or aren't comfortable communicating to the public about. You mentioned um, a cyber defense system um, in 48 states. Intrusion and, detection. I'm sorry? Intrusion detection. Intrusion detection. Um, Called Albert. Very cool. Albert. Is that an acronym? No, it's just called Albert. Just, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned that um, it's being used in 48 states. Yeah. And if there's one thing that has been evidently clear to me over the past four years, and I think a lot of other people, is just how our systems that we thought were so um, strong and impenetrable, right? We've realized that our systems aren't that strong. Like the balance of power is really, um, it's based upon the person that holds that power, right? It's not like there's anything else that's gonna force, uh, you know, uh, a policymaker, an elected official um, to act on, to act as a balance if they're not inclined to do so. Um, so for this intrusion, uh, I'm sorry, you said intrusion defense. Detection system. Detection system. Um, let's say they were to detect something that was happening in Texas. Sure. Um, would Governor Abbott, Abbott be the one to make the determination on if he would share that information with Texas, with his constituents? No, well, you know, this I'm like, is this an at liberty? They'll share it if they want to. Well, just so we're clear, it let, they don't. let me describe how the system operates, and I think this will answer your question. Um, the question: the system is operated by a, a company called the Center for Internet Security, under contract to the Department of Homeland Security, and it provides a basic log records of, of unauthorized attempts to intrude. And that's all it does. It doesn't um, attribute who they are. It doesn't alarm. It just creates these log records that can be used by analysts to reach conclusions about what's happened. So DHS is in control of this. And I think there's a protocol where the state would be involved were that information to be shared with outside of the federal state family, but it isn't shared outside that family. So it's really between the state, the executive, I guess the governor or the secretary of state if Texas has one and I'm not knowledgeable about their particular governance of the election system. but. It's a DHS state or federal state information sharing mechanism. And it provided some of the insights about 2016. 
about when certain certain counties in Florida, for example, uh, were were visited by by Russian threat actors. Um, the information was held quite closely until relatively recently, um, where the counties were actually named, and I won't name them here because I'm afraid of naming the wrong ones. But there were two two counties in Florida that were named, and it's to Google search away for you to be able to identify which ones they were. Uh, and they ended up being named in testimony, not in a, a formal press release that said County X and County Y uh, were, were compromised. And you know the logs don't reveal everything because the first thing cyber actors do, or maybe the last thing cyber actors do before they leave a compromised system is erase the logs. So we all, what we do know is that they were detected. We don't know that much about deeper activity. Uh, my concern is that that kind of activity, probing information systems, is often precursor to something much worse. And we have a, also an escalating cybercrime and ransomware situation in the United States. It is affecting local governments, hospital systems, and private business. And some of the tactics and techniques used are very close to, to the same. Now, do, does that mean that criminals are attacking the uh, voting system? No, it does not. What it means is it's often difficult to tell exactly what's happening and that the people who need to know what's happening may not understand what's happening because the level of cyber expertise it takes to interpret probing behavior is not something that ordinary election administrators are going to know about because they're busy doing their jobs running elections. They're not technical people who are concerned with cyber forensic investigation. I mean, that's something that a cottage industry does. Well, I mean, it's not a cottage industry anymore, but it's certainly not election administrators. Um, it's researchers like me and researchers like other people at University of Maryland who, in a sense, fixate on threat actor behavior because that's kind of what we're interested in, I suppose. Um, translating our concerns into real world dilemmas for policymakers, though, is often difficult to communicate. And we haven't done a very good job of doing that. I confess that I haven't. And that I've done research for people that I think is um, clear, clearly articulated, um, persuasive enough to require action that lands with a dull thud and never makes anybody do anything. Uh, that's, that's a problem in cybersecurity research. It's especially a problem in accelerating cyber defense development in elections. Something that I think about quite often is, as Esther was saying, the, the numbers are showing a landslide or a potential landslide. And yeah, beware of predictions. Yeah, of course. And the numbers usually tighten at this point, and they're still not tightening. And there, there's a lot of questions about even the 2016 exit polling. There was cross-check that showed that there was tremendous voter suppression in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and Illinois or in Wisconsin, North Carolina, Arizona. But my question is, there, if you are losing the election, if you can somehow create enough chaos around election night, so if there is a huge cyber attack that happens a lot around election night, that would not only benefit one party that's losing, but it would also benefit the um, different countries in this geopolitical tension to see the US in such a chaotic state in post-election? I guess I think, not to not interrupt, but I think that we need to be clear about the likelihood of that, and we need to be clear about the sort of fine, fine detail of that particular risk. A cyber attack on the election, on election night, there are certain things it could do and certain things it couldn't do. For example, if you were targeting vote voting, 
actual voting and voting machines. Many of the machines are not networked together across precincts, so an attack on voting machines might not achieve um, that negative result. It would be bad and disruptive, but it might not scale. Second of all, prior to actual voting, there's something called voter registration, which is on often internet adjacent networks where big databases in the states have a list of voters and people register or correct their voting record or do something similar. Um, that's an opportunity for an attacker to perhaps to have a, a higher leverage um, impact on, a, on an election without manipulating voting at all. And those things are the ones where the intrusion detection system is located. So arguably we would have detected that by now. And we've attempted We've detected, I think, publicly uh, reported attempts to uh, surveil things, but we don't have any evidence of break-ins. We don't have any evidence that large-scale voter registration databases have been compromised. So moving from voter registration to vote capture, where we have decentralized, non-networked voting machines, moving to tabulation, where there's more likelihood of net network devices exposing voting data to potential disruption, I suppose. Even there, there are more disciplines on chain of custody, on systems administration and management for network attached tabulators. Um, Just, once, yeah, so, so. So once you get to tabulate, after tabulation, it's obviously outcomes, right? What's the total? What's the total votes? So that's not networked at all, and it actually never concludes on election then. It's, Certification of votes takes place days and weeks later. In fact, I was talking to people from South Carolina a couple of days ago who told me that, you know, it was like 72 hours or a week afterwards before they could certify their vote. So, I mean, that's the path, the pathway through which attacks would have to have the impact they have. And I guess what I and a bunch of people are trying to achieve is telling people exactly what the fine structure is of the election system so that they know how to defend it better. So it's not so much the election night worry as it is the incremental compromise due to undetected compromise in each of those phases. And that's something that we have not engineered our systems to allow, which is why predictions of election night are interesting and you know, they, they give me sweaty palms and make me nervous like they do everybody else. But that's actually not the risk profile of the United States' election infrastructure. And I think that you know, part, of, part of these um, webinars that we're doing um, this week and next week uh, on a school of public policy is to try and tell people the fine detail about how their election system works and how risks could be managed better. So that's now I, you know I'm more anxious maybe over election security than many people are, but I my anxiety is less over election night than it is about an undetected manipulation of the whole system, where everybody thinks well that's just the outcome and everything's fine, sort of like 2016. I, I was re trying to refer more, though, to the infrastructure of we've seen um, news stations go down, uh, right. digital infrastructure. Uh, if that if the if the Internet went down on Election Day or something like that, that in itself would create enough chaos that could lead to intervention by the federal government. Well, I think it would lead to yeah. suspicion that the result was being being tailored or fraudulent. I don't see a direct dotted line from that to, quote, intervention by the federal government. In fact, how could that intervention work itself? After all, the federal government doesn't run elections. 
The states run elections. The states certify elections. The Electoral College is a creature of the states. Now, you could, I could see, I mean, let's, let's examine the scenario a little bit. Uh, we could have federal officials, sort of like, you know, in Oregon, show up next to polling places, I suppose, and try and close polling places. We could see that. Unlikely. Suppose the local police opposed that, that, um, that effort. There are, we already see local mayors and police chiefs warning voters, or warning poll watchers, rather, that they've got to stand back and they aren't allowed to intimidate voters. Uh, we've seen those warnings across the, across the country. So if we had an internet breakdown, which we actually have all the time, by the way, in different regions of the country, um, they don't lead automatically to chaos, let alone a national catastrophe that would be the first failed election in American history. I think that, you know, these are all possible. Um, we have so much more to worry about than that, however. Okay. We shouldn't, so, so, which is a good, good thing to conclude. But, um, you know, having said that, in 10 years, if we're doing internet elections, then, we'll, then your scenario will be the one I will lose sleep over. Because an, internet, an, an election where people are voting online on their smartphones or in a computer like this, that suffered a massive denial of service or a malware attack that disabled the election system, in 10 or 20 years, if we go down that path, that would be a catastrophe. That is not the risk environment today, luckily. It still baffles me that they don't have required paper ballots for everything too, but that's- It baffles me too, I agree with you. That would be a much, um, that is a, a post-2016 consensus, however. Um, as recently as 2016, December 2016, I remember having arguments with a large Northeastern state, which I will not name, about the reliability of their direct record electronic machines. And I remember being told, along with everybody else who was in the room with me, that if we spoke any more about the vulnerability of this state systems, that the state would cease all cooperation with us in terms of risk mitigation. Because a reputational hit on the state was becoming, it was starting to be in the media, and people who wanted to do the right thing but had no money to do it, were starting to worry about being vilified for being criminals. So reputation matters in this, and keeping people on your side, even if they're slow moving, is, is important to get continuous improvement. Now, that's a hard-won lesson for me. It's one I forget all the time because I am more judgmental than, well, maybe Esther knows how judgmental I can be. But I try to be less judgmental because I think part of public policy is the art of the possible and trying to move people along in a good overall direction, even if the pace of their movement isn't in what I would like, I tend to be a very impatient person, and that's not sort of good for your blood pressure if you're in public policy. The very political side of the public policy. Right, exactly. exactly. So moving on, I want to focus on China and sure. supply chains. And according to data published by the United Nations Statistics Division, China accounted for 28% of global manufacturing output in 2018. That puts the country more than 10 percentage points ahead of the United States, United States, which used to have the world's largest manufacturing sector till China overtook it in 2010. So can you talk about how COVID-19 has highlighted major gaps in US foreign policy when it comes to geopolitics in China? Okay, I think the principal effect is on reputation. The United States' reputation for global leadership is undermined by its flawed response to COVID-19 relative to that visible in China. Even though China saw the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 virus first 
it's seen as having a more effective containment strategy, contact tracing strategy, and recovery strategy than we are. Uh, you can look at the numbers as well as I can. The 210 odd thousand uh, fatalities we have in our country, the over seven and a half million um, positively infected people we have in our country, dwarfs the performance negatively of any other major, West, major Western developed country. It's certainly much worse than China, which is now allowing for good or ill its population to return to something that looks like normal life. Normal, you know, children in schools, um, restaurants open, business offices open, people assembling in public squares to do what people do in late fall, sitting around looking at the sky, having fun, being social. Incremental management of pop-ups of infection happen in China that I rather have, right, incremental pop-ups of um, successful virus suppression happen in China that we don't seem to be able to manage. Um, and our economy ground to a halt and it's now, you know, limping along on a recession or depressionary basis. Counterpoint to China where they've, they've achieved an economic takeoff again where positive growth quarter over quarter. We are years from doing that unless we get a really good vaccine or set of therapies, none of which seem on the horizon in the next couple of months, maybe in the six to 12 months, but not in the next couple of months. So let's look at our major trading partners in Europe and Asia and see what their performance is. Uniformly better than ours. Uniformly better than ours in terms of public health interventions, in terms of reactions to early warning, and in terms of understanding that you need to support the economic infrastructure of your country, keep it alive while you deal with this public health challenge. That challenge in the United States has become overwhelmingly politicized in a way that has parts of the government feuding with other parts of the government. And do I need to comment much about the performance of our chief executive in this area? I, I won't because we'll get off track here. My point is that the comparison between an effective government in Beijing and a, and a dysfunctional government in Washington has reputational consequences for us. Those consequences enter into an environment where we were already identified as losing economic leadership to China in both employment, in 10 key technology areas articulated in their Made in China 2025 policy. And in, you know, I'm reading this week, just because I'm sort of a military geek, I read that China's Navy is now the world's largest, for example. Uh, now, numbers don't count for everything, but who predicted that in 2020, the United States Navy would now be smaller than our, than our major peer competitor? That is an indicator of a direction of trends where our leadership, our ability to define military facts and strategic facts around the world is slipping away. And that wasn't an inevitable thing. That was a result of our mistakes. So our mistakes, our poor performance, our relative um, decline relative to China in terms of industrial capability, as you, you exemplified. Um, people are watching how we perform, our allies and our adversaries. Our reputation for competence, for scientific rigor, for a belief in science is all on the line. And every day you see more and more evidence that people are coming to some conclusions about us. And this election won't change that, by the way. This ele the election outcome won't change the conclusions people have reached due to their views of our behavior in the last 12 to 18 months.
So true. It's going to take a very long time to rebuild a lot of the international uh, if they can alliances be and relations. Be rebuilt. There, I don't. I think that there is a view, and especially given where we live in the Washington area, that if there was a change of leadership, we would get to put everything back the way it used to be, where things were perfect. Well, things weren't perfect, and I served in the Obama administration a long time ago, and I'm proud of that service. And everyone who knows me knows how positively I feel about President Obama. We made mistakes, and the United States made mistakes preceding the Obama administration that allowed China's rise to go uninterrupted for a long time when we should have been responding. And that means, for example, the level of IP theft, intellectual property theft and critical data theft by China that was central to its economic model and still is, went unanswered for decades. Arguably, some of us think that was a net R&D subsidy to their industrialization. Imagine if you were spending, imagine if you didn't have to spend on industrial research and development, you could just steal it from somebody else. Many of China's breakthroughs have come that way, and I have written articles that describe some of the ways in which that happens in particular industry contexts. But the, but the takeaway is that a mercantilist, and I can define that a bit later if you want, a mercantilist predation-ridden global economics model, China's, is beating liberal capitalist economic models in all of the economic indicators that we used to think counted. Capital formation, employment, technological advance in key sectors, military production, industrial production as you, as you recounted. Areas that we used to have strong industries in where we've lost and most Western countries are in a similar position. So, Whatever we're doing is not allowing us to compete effectively with China. So I guess I have some specific recommendations to make of what we should do. But the overall point is whatever we are doing isn't working and that we need to try something that might. Now, obviously, success is not guaranteed to any attempt or any policy. But the idea that um, if things go back to normal with a president that maybe is more engaged and more um, in sync with governance, I suppose, put it that way, um, that won't solve all of our problems. Don't, don't misunderstand me. It'll be a much better state of the world in my mind. But time moves on. The world's moved on from us. And it may allow us to catch up with it. It may not. Our role in the world will be different because of this administration. Something that I see in China is its connection with Wall Street and how much profit has been made in the runaway shops to China to exploit their cheap labor to now to the point where China is creating high intense, uh, high capital goods manufactured of everything from high tech value products and services like biotech, pharmaceutical, automotive, aerospace, semiconductor, IT and robotics are part of their made in China 2025. And there's eerie similarities between the cartels with US industrialists and the German industrialists in the 1930s that kind of locked them together that prevented a lot of the US ruling class to actually engage um, against Germany at that time and I think against China today. Um, that may be a little bit outside of the, the purview here, but uh, Esther, I, I don't know if you're uh, looking at 
coming in as well to this conversation or if I just, can I just respond to what going. you said? Yeah. Um, can I just say a, a word or two about what you just said? Sure. So I think that it's arguably not the same as it was in the 1930s um, for a couple of reasons. One, the technologies that we are losing ground in are differently capital intensive. It isn't heavy industry, it's more intellectual property tied to artificial intelligence and machine intelligence and precision materials. I also think that the stock market's not a good, not a good index for where the economy is relative to supply chains. I think that the supply chain vulnerabilities are pointed to specific industries, often military industries, or they're very important. Um, but it's different than the industrial supply chains of the 30s and 40s, where the commanding heights of our economy um, were directly correlated with military potential. The commanding heights of Wall Street don't actually correlate with military potential and don't necessarily correlate with peer competition either. I also think that big business is autonomous from governments today in a way that it wasn't in the 1930s. And I think globalization under, under, underlines that. So whatever is going on there, and a lot negative is going on there, is not the same phenomenon. And it might be a phenomenon that is worse than the 1930s. If you'll bear with me for a second and I'll describe exactly how it might be worse. Um, in the 1930s at least, governments slowly came around to the view that they had a responsibility for national economies, even if it was during wars and they needed to mobilize. Our globalization processes have slowly delegitimated government intervention into reshaping the macro, the macro economy to benefit citizens. Instead, we've turned citizens into consumers, which are preferentially served by business, not government. In fact, the ideology of neoliberalism argues against government interventions that the 1930s and 40s showed us or articulated as solutions. Back then, you had a narrative debate between people who believed um, in different ideologies, but they all believed the government was going to intervene in, in the preferences the capitalists had. I'm not sure that we have a, an elite consensus or a government consensus on government intervention to counter the preferences of the capitalists. And I, I can think of a million examples of, of how we don't. For example, these look at the subsidies during the in the CARES Act and other places to industry that had no payback provisions or no conditionalities to them. We were ultimately writing black check blank checks to to industry without government as having conditions. That's that's a different phenomenon in the 1930s. But, and the industries that we were writing checks to weren't the same either because a heavy industrial production that correlated with peer competition and, that, and global standing is not who's getting the money. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's finance and it's transportation, different industries. Uh, I think there's also a question about whether the elite of the 1930s is the same as the globalized neoliberal elite that's in charge today. I think they're different people with different economic incentives and often, whereas in the 30s, they may have actually had national loyalty if you look at the people who rebuilt U.S. military industry in the 40s. Um, we don't have those people. What we have is international capital that's more financial sector in nature and is more global or internationalist in orientation. So I don't think these areas are very comparable at all. I don't think that makes it better. In fact, I think it makes it worse because I think the levers the government's had in the past to make business 
adhere to the national interest was stronger then. I think we lack those levers today, and I think that's one of the reasons why recovery from a failed neoliberal globalization model is going to be so much more bumpy, because governments often don't even think that's what they should do. We look at our current administration. Do they think they are going to intervene to restructure the economy opposite the preferences of, of uh, a globalization, globalized business? No, they don't even see that as a legitimate um, role for government. I think that's more analogous to the 1880s than it is to the 1930s. Anyway, it's my, my perspective. I actually um, really agree with you. Um, if our, you know, our middle class um, has basically been decimated, you know, specifically in the past 30, 40 years, right? And I don't even know, right? Once all this is over with, right? Whenever we, well, we'll never go back to normal, right? We don't know what normal is anymore, but like, it, it really concerns me um, how those that already struggled, right? Are gonna be able to get out of this. Um, I just like the downer because I, I tend to be like the, the optimists and, you know, <laughs> we're going to get through it. But yeah, I think that um, irrespective of your party, and I really mean that, I think there's, you know, legislators on the left that um, do it as well. But, it, you know, this idea that government's bad <laughs> and that um, they shouldn't have to solve your problems, that... Um, you know what I'm saying? If if you need them for help, somehow there's something wrong with you, or you didn't work hard enough, or um, my least favorite saying, you you know, you couldn't pull yourself up from the bootstraps and um, you know figure it out. Like, no, that's actually why you exist. Like, <laughs> your sole purpose, right, is to be at the service of your people. I mean, you work for us. I think that's right. I think that's what arguably, you know, I'm from School of Public Policy, so I guess I have to say things like this. But public policy is about speaking on behalf of the public interest. A public interest which isn't simply reducible to the interest of business or narrow sectoral interests. Um, the U.S.'s interests, the interest of citizens, I mean. In the 1930s, we actually, 30s, 40s, and 50s, we actually had a consensus to speak that way about the public interest. We lack that consensus today. And worse, the absence of that consensus empowers disinformation, misinformation, and opinion manipulation through social media in a way that preceding generations had defenses against because they, they actually had a space between whatever broadcast or community platform that they depended upon for information and their daily lives. We gave up that separation by inviting Facebook in to every aspect of our lives. And by the way, most Americans get their news from Facebook, not from great podcasts like this one and not from um, PBS or NBC. So we have fewer defenses against um, sort of atomization of culture that delegitimates government action in defense of citizens. And that's, that's a that's a huge problem, <laughs> it really is, because it means that civil society and its ability to make corrections in policy may be weaker now than it's been for a generation. I mean, I think 
as we're discussing this, I'm thinking about um, Lindsey Graham's most recent performance um, in his debate against, um, I think, Jamie Harrison. And it's a viral clip, it's a clip that's gone viral. And he's talking about how, um, you know, the Democrats today are crazy or, um, you know, they just want free healthcare for the illegals and this and that. And it's like, you know, they, they want free healthcare. And it's like, why is that bad? <laughs> like, I don't understand. And it wouldn't be free, you know, I, I'm very, Again, it's the discourse. Now when, I, when I say that, because there's no such thing as free. We, you know, you said, you talked about subsidies for corporations, right? I am intentional now in saying that that's welfare, okay? So if I need help and the government can assist me, that's a subsidy because I have contributed to, uh, to my government, my local government, my state government. I've contributed to my federal government. I've been doing it for the past, honestly, I've been working since I was 14. So whatever, uh, 20 something years. Um, so it, it, you know, it's my right. And I think that one thing that, um, I guess the GOP, and I will say this and for them, is like, you know, they've, they've utilized, they've, they've learned to frame things, right? Um, as your patriotic duty or, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who are like proud to be Americans, right? But at the same time, they will look at you and say, why would you want us to, you know, give you free stuff. And it's not free. Well, I mean, this is, you know, you know they, have an they have an ideological position that, uh, that frames the narrative. And the narrative is, again, delegitimating a government intervention that might change things. I understand that. But I'm like, but you're the government. Yeah. You know, like. It, elect me. The government doesn't work. Elect me and I'll prove it. But Esther, I mean, I, I want to look at like what created the middle class, right? It was the New Deal policies and New yeah. Deal had problems and had major racial problems. But Absolutely. the New Deal also came in with Roosevelt in 1933. The entire system collapsed. The entire old ideological system, the banking system collapsed. Nothing was working. And I, I would push back a little bit, David, about there, that there was an ideological coherence I don't think that existed until the actual war with until Japan and started uh, bomb Pearl Harbor. Because I would say I would say the Charles Lindbergh of the world, uh, the fascist strains within the U.S. in the 1930s, with Smedley Butler being hired by J.P. Morgan to run a coup in 1935 against Roosevelt. There's an assassination attempt against Roosevelt in 1933 that killed the mayor of Miami right before he got put into power. So note that I said coherence, not consensus. Okay. okay. So, well, I, I don't think there will ever be a, a consensus with so, who are going right, to... Right, I don't think dollar. the public policy in the United States requires uh, as much consensus as we often think. We, we talk about bipartisanship as a, as a fetish in this country. I think that what we should talk about is, is the effective coalition it takes to govern, and, which is in fact what we end up doing, right? Um, and that effective coalition, if we're lucky, can sometimes be the majority of Americans, but often is not. Right. Uh, witness our current administration, which obviously did not get the majority vote of the electorate. But it's a governing coalition that managed to have its way. So I think it's much more mature and much more actually true, true, consistent with the way we are, to talk about the viability of a governing consensus comprised of a variety of different people who have a common diagnosis of the problem of a problem or set of problems that can sustain policy responses for long enough to actually have impact. 
And that's probably longer than four years. Whether your concern is with elections or with China or with the environment, it's all longer than four years. And the question is, if, if, we, if our politics is now four years long, where every four years we throw out one party and another one comes in and reverses everything, if that's where we are, we are never going to achieve persistent success in strategic aims. If our aim, for example, was to become the largest industrial country again, say, if that was, not, I'm not arguing whether that's a good aim or not, but I'm just saying, if that was our aim, that would require a long time. And it would also require making some decisions about which sectors you were going to be, that you wanted to lead in and what you were going to do about unfair competition from China. And that would take more than four years or maybe even eight years to have measurable impact. Are we patient enough to, to persist with policies with that time horizon, given how, how divided we are? Um, I'm not certain. I think our adversaries are looking at us and are reaching some conclusions on that very question. And I fear that their conclusion is that they can use our division to stop us ever getting coherence, not consensus, coherent policy that is sustainable over more than a single administration. If that's true, then our decline will become real. And nothing's irreversible, I suppose. But it's hard to see how you sort of pull out of the death spiral when you can't agree on who should have the controls. That's, that's my view. I think in the 30s, we lucked out in the, actually it's the 40s for the United States. I have to keep remembering that my, my old country, Canada, actually declared war in 39 with the Brits, <laughs> not, not the 40s, right? So yeah, the war solved many problems and created some other ones, but it, it at least provided a national coherent definition of who the bad guy was and what we were going to do about it for a short period of time. And the level of destruction around the world was so massive that our standing economy, I think at the end of the World War II was over 45% of global GDP was the United States, right? So, so yes, massive superiorities and we shaped the world, we reshaped the world. Now you look at the Bretton Woods conferences in the late 40, in the 40s and the United Nations that, was, that we designed and everybody signed on to, the World Bank, the IMF, all these things we created which shaped the economic destiny of the world for decades afterwards. Um, anybody think we're capable of doing that kind of big world building right now? Either because of deference to elites or because of some sort of underlying consensus that we should lead the world and our model and our example is compelling. We lack the elite consensus and no one in the rest of the world would follow our model in the same way as they thought I had no choice of doing back then. So, yeah, the world's different and our potentiality is different. And I don't think that um, a four-year or two-year or even lower, even a shorter political cycle allows us to get enough momentum. It, it does allow disruption. It really engenders the capacity to disrupt. And that is what many of our adversaries want. They want a United States that is fighting itself. And that's, they're doing really well at either passively watching that happen or helping us disrupt ourselves. So a big policy concern I have is that disruptive potential that stops us from having coherent policy on almost anything that's consequential, from climate to energy to 
military and defense issues, to countering a big peer competitor from China, to what to do about our European allies not paying their way fully in defense, to you name it. We're, we have a two-year policy that collides with an election and then either gets changed or muted dramatically due to political rhetoric. And we've been that way for a while. I wish we weren't, <laughs> but, but we are. And when I know what people say when I go to France and Germany and Canada about um, us, and these are our friends. You know, one, I remember after 2016, the first question I was asked was, what happened? And it, they were asking about the election. Then they asked, what happened? What happened to you as a country? This isn't the America we've known, is, is the phrase that was used to me by some German colleagues. 2017, 2018. At first, I didn't really know what they meant. I know what they mean now. <laughs> and, you know, it's the experience of the last three and a half years. Our life. <laughs> that, it, that is, you know, it's aged as all the last three and a half or four years. Um, in terms of seeing things we thought that were true about ourselves that turn out to be less true. So with the growth of artificial intelligence and facial recognition and algorithmic discrimination, could you discuss the impacts of these trends on the diverse communities in the US and how this may escalate in the future? So I think that, you know, it's early days to discuss the real impacts, but I think there are some harbingers that aren't particularly um, encouraging. Um, first, um, government may in fact not be as aware of the developments of the technology as it should be, because many of these technologies are being developed in the private sector. Facebook, Amazon, um, Microsoft, and others, Google in particular, are developing algorithms and um, techniques for identifying persons, you know, one to a million, one to two million, which are very granular and very accurate. Um, they also are connected to behavioral analysis tools and algorithms that can slice and dice the American population into groups whose preferences can be sold to advertisers, which is kind of their business model. That allows for economic growth. It allows for new products and services to be innovated in and sold to Americans. Services um, such as you know, location finding, finding of relatives through network analysis, um, small businesses that have access to a large market, larger markets due to distance and the internet. So there are a lot of positives here in terms of economic potentiality. Some of the more troubling problems or issues after all, problems are in the eye of the beholder, I suppose. Um, suppose, for example, I like to use hypotheticals in my class, so I'm sort of going to do that right now. Suppose you've got a facial recognition algorithm that you don't know where it's from, but it's available for you with very affordably or free. And, you, you, and you're a law enforcement agency, and you use this for video lineups to solve crimes. And the algorithm's very accurate, and you're assured that it's very accurate. Suppose it makes mistakes with people of color, but not with Caucasian people. Suppose it's less accurate when identifying women than it is when it's identifying men. Suppose those records aren't self-correcting because the liability for mistakes is risk-shifted away from the producer of the technology. Each of those situations confront facial recognition today used by law enforcement at the federal level, at the state and local level too. So if you're misidentified and you suffer a loss of job or other negative consequences, you may have little recourse for redress. 
that's a challenge. So the, the technology that's introduced that has positive attributes in business formation and new digital services for the society can also reinforce existing cleavages for those discriminated against in a manner that creates disparate impact. So who's responsible for those disparate impacts? Is the source of the technology responsible? Probably not. Is government responsible? Government, after all, permitted the technology to be introduced. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe government didn't know. Maybe government lacked the basic information on the way the technology works to make an intervention of policy. What about consumers? Consumers who, who take the benefits of technology uh, and, are, and remain ignorant of the risks. So AI, machine intelligence, and the digital services that need those, um, that leverage those, those products bring complexity. And where's public policy in understanding that complexity? I know a number of my colleagues and I are concerned that we're already technically behind in the public policy domain relative to technical change elsewhere. AI increases that dramatically so that detecting discrimination, for example, could become very difficult in an algorithmic universe where virtual redlining is possible through an algorithm rather than through the negative behaviors of known landlords. Perhaps people of particular groups don't get loans anymore for mortgages because the algorithms suggest that they are at credit risk. We even use algorithms to decide who gets parole. And sentencing guidelines are keyed to the likelihood of recidivism. Suppose the data, the training data used to develop those algorithms is biased in some way. How would you know that it was biased? How would you prove that it was biased at a general level? And if you happen to be victimized by these, these algorithmic decision-making systems, how would you prove that bias, bias your result, your individual result? You might not only have no recourse juridically, but you might have no recourse through an access to information which you don't own and that somebody else does. So the governance challenge from these technologies is large and persistent and likely to grow. The upside of the technology in terms of economic activity, uh, business formation, profits, tax revenue could be very big. So will those disparate impacts be addressed in a timely way? We'll find out because that'll be our lived experience for the next 25 or 30 years while these technologies work their way through society. So what type of policies, though, would you think could help regulate this technology and, and data? So I think, first of all, transparency on the algorithms themselves when they're used in public purposes, public um, like law enforcement, for example, is necessary so that you can do effective oversight. And I'm told by computer scientists that, that kind of transparency is possible. It's possible to communicate those insights to generalists as well. In fact, we had a, political science, a computer scientist rather on our last panel, last election panel, who works in that area. The complex systems can be understood and there, and bias can be detected. Um, so once it's detected, presumably countermeasures can be put into laws and rules. So I think that's important. Secondly, I think that the sources of the technology need to be made accountable for errors in some way. Now, not all errors, obviously errors that can be predicted, accidents, right? Although when other technologies create enhanced harm in accidents, we hold people accountable for that, don't we? When we have cars that are broken parts or something, and it causes an accident, 
we don't say, oh no, car manufacturer, we can't hold you accountable. We say, did you know about the, the broken part? What steps did you take to make that part less, less of a safety hazard or something? We don't do that for artificial intelligence service providers yet. So probably accountability would be necessary. Thirdly, and this is something that the House of Representatives just reported on recently, the big purveyors of these technologies are somewhat immune from antitrust oversight until recently. So if you looked at the House of Representatives recent, report, recent um, report, 450 pages, I believe, I'm not through more than 50 pages of it yet, but it's identifying the market shaping monopolistic behavior of big technology providers, many of whom produce these algorithms. So I think general oversight over monopolists in the digital services domain is probably going to reveal new facts for how you might control them. So I'm a, I'm a fan of looking at people who claim that they're different, people who claim monopoly was something that you had to worry about in the 19th century, but you don't have to worry about it now. I worry about it, and I don't think the monopolists have the same names. And I think that taking a look at corporate power that seems to be not accountable to anybody other than itself or its shareholders, and that in areas where government is honestly ignorant of many of the, many of the technologies in place, I invite you to look at times when Facebook and Amazon and others testify in front of congressional committees and look at what it's like. This is even in the, in the context of these committees asking for disclosure prior to the hearings, where you get data. I presume that the hearings are, take place after the data is received, but the questioning from staff and from members is, let's say, disappointing. I'll use that word. I have other words to describe it as well. But that's emblematic of an oversight mechanism that isn't up to it yet. And if you're going to have a artificial intelligence revolution with the impacts I'm suggesting, then that's got to change. We need oversight that is more up the technology curve, is more willing to think the unthinkable, actually regulating monopoly. We used to think that, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act was back in the early 1900s. Maybe we need a new version of that. Maybe we need to take on board the fact that government, that thing that some people don't like, actually has a legitimate role in defending society and citizen choice from monopolistic power. And I think that that is probably the biggest high leverage counter to these trends. Um, this is probably coming out of left field though, um, but that's the reason why civic education is so important. Like, yes, that's what, that's what legislators are supposed to do. They're supposed to, you know, note what's happening. Like Amazon is absolutely a monopoly. Um, so I'm not sure if they're a monopoly or not. Here's my point. Okay, well, remember, I'm there are large <laughs> technology companies that are shaping the economy in Absolutely. ways and that are look, brand new and the government should have an opinion about. That's all. Well, I, I, I guess the way I look at it and when I say that they're a monopoly and it's my humble opinion and I have no PhD in econ or any of that, but when they- I'm a political scientist, so I don't either. So that's <laughs> I have, you know, when they've shut down mama papa shops all across the country from bookstores to toy stores, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, and they're not regulated at all. You know, like that's, that's exactly the purpose. It's only recently uh, they have started to pay taxes, right? They used to well, just tell states that they didn't need to pay taxes. Right. 
How many local government, local businesses get to do that? Well, Any? I mean, <laughs> I mean, we could really get into this. You know, I, you know, it, it's funny because the way I grew up, um, I I've said this over and over again. Like, I grew up in a single family, single mom home. We were poor. Um, so as far as I was concerned, um, government helps. You pay your taxes. And I've never understood the whole like stop raising taxes because as far as I was concerned, that goes to programs that helps people like my mom back then, right? But what I do realize is Reaganomics, um, you know, he has been almost like idolized by the right um, because of his economic policies. And, you know, I think that's kind of where the end of the middle class started. It was, you know, let's get rid of all these high taxes for these rich people and let's start to levy these um, restrictions over going to send, uh, you know. So I have some sympathy for that, but I actually don't think that's what happened. Um, I think that, um, you know, economies evolve, especially the U.S. economy. It didn't evolve in a particular direction because the U.S. government said it should. It evolved that way because of sort of randomness of government interventions to shape, to reshape outcomes that some people at certain points in time didn't like. Right. For example, the breakup of AT&T into the baby bells that happened in the 1980s. You know, most, most Americans that had phones were, you know, they weren't in love with their phone service, but it wasn't a huge pain point for many people. I mean, there are, there are ideolo ideologues who all AT&T with a monopoly need to be broken up, but that's kind of, that wasn't sort of the consensus opinion of the American people. It was a consensus of opinion of some people in the judiciary and some politicians. But after it was broken up, you got this generation of innovation and market formation and new models. And now we don't have to buy our phones from a single company anymore and all this stuff that happened. Same with the internet. The internet, partially a government creation, partially a private sector creation. We, it was hands off for a generation before people finally decided for because of particular issues that they needed to influence its shape. So we have these sort of quasi-random movements and interventions into economic development that in, at least in the 20th century, seemed like they just worked and that America's economy would just naturally evolve to benefit Americans. And Americans came to believe that. So that they weren't interested. So that when Reagan said, you know, too much government, blah, blah, it was sort of pushing on an open door because most Americans thought that the economy was naturally evolving in the way that it should. And that if government, and government wasn't smart enough to figure out what to do differently, at least enough Americans felt that way to allow Reagan to do what he did. After that, the natural stability of the American economy fell apart because of a lot of other forces in the globe. But right, and he was able to do that because he, he was. Well, I don't think he did it as much as he was in office while the disintegration gathered momentum and was was uh, noted, for example, you know. The ability of the United States, for example, to maintain a global gold standard, 1971, not Reagan. Is it, I, that's way more significant than what Reagan did in terms of tax cuts. Because the ideology that allowed Reagan to argue that the government was the source of all problems had already gathered momentum before he was in. Um, and failures in Vietnam didn't help. So the, that ideology of the US economy sort of being golden, good, government being corrupt and bad, 
that's an old American uh, belief. Um, even the ideology of limited government that we had as a sort of national, um, national trait, I suppose, feeds into this cynicism of any governmental intervention to do anything for anybody. Um, and that's unique, that's empowering when everything's going your way, because it means that you think you don't need government. But suddenly when you do, when you try and reach for the lever to say, okay, now government, come help us, guess what happened to all the expertise and the legitimacy and the knowledge and the risk awareness? It, it's gone. And you end up good government failure after failure after failure. If I have a fear of a change in administration, I don't really. Please cut this part out, by the way. But, but if I did have a fear, it's that Biden wins and he falls on his face. And then Trump, who isn't just going to leave quietly, comes back and says, see what I told, see, see what I told you was going to happen, happened. He's to blame for all of this. And Democrats are often unlucky and take the blame for Republican failures. So a failed, you know, failed presidency after Trump would be worse than a Trump second term. I know Reagan, right? Because I remember uh, the recession when Bush took office. But I also remember just how, and I, actually I should say, I don't remember it, but like my mom talks about it and my dad talks about it, like just how good the economy was in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And then like, I feel like just the rug got pulled out from under people and they don't understand exactly how it happened. Right, right? So like right now people could say, you know, Americans all across the country could say, I had a job right. and now it's gone because now I was providing some sort of a service and Amazon's doing it for, you know, a third less. It's like, yeah, but you know, Americans, the president isn't going to be able to change that. Americans like, don't blame Amazon though. Different. Americans blame the government for not having good economic policies, right? I, I have to interject too. The, the, the back of organized labor was broken in the 70s and carter helped with that unfortunately yeah, carter carter yeah, saw the saw the organized labor is just another interest group where yeah. you see inequality a one-to-one -one proportion change as inequality goes up and the rich get richer union membership goes down and down yeah, in right. the that's private sector and the public carter sector is different and that's carter not reagan i think that's the, the point and then it gets reagan. gets into reagan and we've been in the reagan uh, yeah. arena for the last yeah. 40 years and imagine if carter, and you have ted kennedy and you have imagine if carter had argued over. differently imagine if carter had thought unions weren't just an interest group imagine if carter would have said no unions gave us the middle class if that had been his policy in those four years i wonder what reagan would have been able to do he would have he wouldn't have been able to do everything he did do because maybe Carter would have won anyway, who knows? Carter was a war with organized labor from like the second year he was in office, and that was a problem. Because it was, it was not true that organized labor was the problem in the US economy, but he said it was. And he convinced enough people that said, if that's true, then you as a Democrat are not the solution. This other guy is. And suddenly we're into this Reagan as the harbinger of progress, which, reinforced a lot of very negative traits inside of US politics, let's face it, like bigger, like um, revising the acceptability of bigotry. That was, I'm not naive about what it was like in the 70s, but Reagan revolutionized the acceptability of white supremacy in a way that we haven't seen until relatively recently with the current guy. 
So the Lee Atwater at strategy yeah. of, of yeah. the dog whistle is now tax exactly. cuts. Exactly. So we've been discussing for sort of an hour and a half exactly the, the uphill battle we're going to have here with, with challenges at home and abroad and a, a skeptical public that even if it chooses um, to make a change, probably has pretty low expectations and may object to the medicine that's necessary to to fix things. I mean, I, I wonder about the acceptability of things like mask mandates, for example. And I know what certain states will, how certain states will react. I have no concerns about Virginia and Maryland. I think we probably do what we're told. Texas, Florida, Kentucky, I mean, do I need to go on about, about, about the coherence of national policy? Notice again, not consensus, coherence. I think consensus, you know, we're 330 million of us or something. I'm not sure we have consensus about much fashion or TV shows or religion or. But I, I think Social Security has about, and Medicare have about 70% approval rating. In Good. General. That means, of course, they won't be attacked then. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> right. Again, coherence. The coherence, I think, is a sort of, sort of a lost concept in American political science, which is about the ability of a a governing coalition to maintain a policy for long enough to change the minds of a broad group of people who simply either have no opinion or acquiesce. And I don't think that we think in those terms anymore. Instead, we're, we're sort of, we look at the opinion polls today that sort of celebrate the fact that Joe Biden is the first Democrat since, since Clinton, I suppose, Bill Clinton, to get a majority of white male voters without university education, if that's even true. We're celebrating that as if that's going to give you the ability to govern coherently for more than a year or two. It won't. Because in appealing to them, some other part of your coalition is going to start peeling off for some other reason. But the frustration I have is that, and this is again a public policy professor talking, of course, is that our ability to implement complex policies that have payoffs that are beyond the time horizon of the least attentive voter is ebbing away. And those are exactly the kind of policy interventions we need to handle things like climate change, energy dependence, our racial problems in our society. They all require time and patience and empathy, all of which we seem to be having less and less supply. And that, that's, a, that's, a, that's not an optimistic vote to end on, I'm sorry. But that's, those are, you know, this is an appeal for, for what I'm calling policy coherence. And that is, it's partially the political savvy to be able to organize a coalition that can last for a little while. It's having evidence behind what you want to do. And it's having empathy for people who won't gain immediately from what you want to do. So that you're willing to make these side payments and edge bets in case you're wrong. And that, that engenders trust if you're transparent enough and you're communicating that to your, your coalition, which may not be the majority yet. So you know, you gotta have a time horizon to think that, and be willing to accept that maybe you got the solution wrong and you need to change, and you might lose everything as a result. That's where we are, that, that sort of coherence coalition is, is where my heart is, and it's why I think that you know, we still have a chance here. If I believed it was just majority, then I'm not sure I'd still be in this business. I do have to say, though, I want to get back to my disagreement because I disagree with you 
when it comes to the jobs and, you know, people are blaming the government. I don't think so. I think that's part of the reason why we're so divided. They tend to blame others for taking these jobs away from them. And others the, even the black and brown community tend to take the brunt of that. Right, but when white, but when white working class people, for example, blame immigrants or people of color for the loss of their jobs, they're not blaming the government other than blaming the right. government for letting those people in. But that's not the same as blaming the government as an institution for loss of economic opportunity. That, those are, one's, one is a nativist um, hostility to a culture or a race, and the other is a, an economically based class attack on the elite to run the government. These are different, different phenomena. Um, and but I think they, might both be, they might be both present, but they're different, um, analytically at least, I think. And I'm not I sure, it, but I I'm not sure one's better than the other. I think yeah, they intersect. I for think example, so. if you had a choice, would you choose class conflict or racial conflict? What a choice. Which one would you rather have? I think class is going to, I think if you can deliver jobs, if you can deliver actual goods to people, and that's why I think Biden needs a hundred day plan and something like a civilian conservation corps that can generate 30 million jobs over the course of the next I agree with that. I agree with that. And that is, and if you deliver, if you deliver something like that and you rebuild the entire infrastructure with $10 trillion, you know, over a hundred year bonds at near zero percent. Yeah, I agree with that too. You're, you're going to be able to create a coherence of people buying into it and, and people are gonna suddenly, I mean, as bad as Trump's jobs program is, which it wasn't really a jobs program, his jobs program was essentially, those people over there are taking your jobs. Right. That was his jobs program. Clinton didn't even have a jobs program. It was buried on the 15th page of her website that she rarely spoke about. Yep. So the Democratic Party has gotten away from an actual jobs program. And the new Democrats, they moved away from the New Deal Democrats with Clinton into the new Democrats. And I think there's an opportunity now that the system's going to be so dysfunctional. No, I agree. And, that's and, why and this is the opportunity to have and, and keep the media and keep the opposition off balance where you introduce a new huge piece of legislation every day for 100 days yeah. and you just make it start working. But well, I don't know if Biden has that, that ability. I totally that's what we should do. I mean, I totally agree. Um, I am sure there will be 100 day plans. Whether they'll be as audacious as what you just said, I wish they were. Um, I'm not sure temperamentally whether that's what. Vice President Biden would do, he should do that. Why? Because we've tried the incremental before. And it, it's, the, we need a shock to the system in a good way. <laughs> we need to, people to believe that the $10 trillion number is a great number because we actually have spent half of that already during this year trying to revive the economy. We need something of that scale to actually make people believe that we're serious. I, mean, I totally agree with that. Do I think we're gonna do that? <laughs> That's where we push. Yes. But, I mean, I think we should do that. And I think that there are some people who do. Having said that, I do recall some of his financial advisors, well, actually economic advisors, talking about the necessity of, quote, addressing the deficit. <laughs> yeah, I think Tom Car Carper, the senator yeah, yeah. from Delaware for two, yeah. two years, uh, is his economic guy and said, well, yeah, we need to, we, yeah, we're not going to have the same amount of the treasury. Is, and and yeah, the, the insanity of that view, austerity never works. Every time you start cutting, it actually contract, it, it like uh, stricts and, and 
the, yeah, the I mean, I think, the economic, I think you're right. I think the records, the records in on that. Austerity but, never works. But, you know, just because we all agree on this call does not mean that, <laughs> that policy is going to break out of a straitjacket. The straitjacket is Democrats believing what the Republicans say about deficits but never practice. I mean, the Republicans build up the debt like drunken soldiers, drunken sailors here. And then Democrats end up being austerity warriors trying to clean it up at the cost of ordinary people. And we then we spend the money yeah. on these social programs that don't work. Right. But right. There's that too, right? There's programs that actually don't do what we say we want them to do. So I'm, you know, I'm with you on us needing to sort of break out of our, to break out of the straitjacket of accepted wisdom. Uh, I just wonder whether in fact we're going to do that. I hope we do. Um, and if we did, government might start to rehabilitate itself. The American people might actually start to give it the benefit of the doubt. Because right now, I don't know that it will. And I think even if it does go that way, you're going to have some of the, the people in finance who are going to go to the Fed Reserve and want to jack up interest rates like they did for under at the end of Carter into Reagan. And at the same time, you're going to have China and other countries that are looking to move off the U.S. dollar reserve and there's going to be a tax and there's less and less of the U.S. bond market being yeah, that's, able that's to be sold internationally. That's something we didn't talk about, and I'm not trying to extend this call, but there is the notion of cryptocurrencies arriving backed by sovereign treasuries in Russia and China. It's going to start denominating Belt and Road Initiative trade pretty soon. It'll probably be end up a wallet in these for retail purchases in the next two years. Large parts of the world are moving off a dollar denomination standard that, for the first time ever. Um, and that's going to be a part of the new administration's challenge as well. Um, so what are we going to do about that? I mean, in fact, we might actually need to emulate it. But it's a new challenge. And it's not a simple challenge that you can explain to the American people easily, right? I mean, first of all, how many Americans understand Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? I don't. How many policymakers do? And trying to get their head around an economic approach to that problem that doesn't, that can't be mischaracterized by somebody. I mean, we're prisoners of our own short attention spans and our inability to understand or accept that public policy challenges can be complex. It's not physics, I probably shouldn't say that, but it's, but it's, not, it's not like the family table on the family checkbook balancing it, it's not that. If we were better at explaining to the American people exactly what it is, though. Maybe we'd get that acquiescence we need for expertise to actually have its way for a while and right the ship. Because we need a little bit of acquiescence here. Because everyone's not going to come on, come on stream at the same time, understanding either what we face or what we need to do about it. And I do think there are solutions here. Um, and I think that some of the solutions Maybe most of the solutions are not going to come from Washington, D.C., or even from the coasts. What a revolutionary statement, right? Um, that the, the richest parts of the country may not be the solutions to these challenges. Um, even if they are, most of the country isn't, well, actually, most of the country does live near the coasts. The other parts of the country that <laughs> live in the interior need to have things explained to them, um, especially given that the policies that we're going to need to launch climate change being the best example, are decades-long efforts to change preferences and change results. And 
you know, the political consequences of not bringing people along are political disintegration. We can see the parts of that already. Um, it may be a choice between moving more slowly or fracturing the, the politics of the country even further. Uh, and I, you know, I naturalized here, so I know why I choose if it was a question of disintegrating the country versus uh, setting a record and getting the policy. I choose preservation of the country, personally.